Is this the end? It's a question that's probably popped up in our minds at least a little bit, perhaps a lot in the last two years. Is this the end? Pandemic, worldwide devastation, political unrest, even rumors and fears of, of, of a civil war even within our own nation. The division is so deep. And how can we get out of it? Is this the end? I don't have an outline for you this morning. Um, and that was very intentional. Because what I'm going to talk about is I'm, I'm going to do a, a very quick, kind of hit the highlights, if you will, of the book of Revelation, and I'll have you out of here by 4 p.m., you know. <laughs> but it, it's not easy to, to kind of jump in without getting lost in, in, in all the details of Revelation. But I'm going to begin today by sharing something that happened to me when I was 12 years old. It was a, it was a summer day in July. It was a Tuesday night, maybe a Wednesday, but it was a typical summer day, warm, probably hot. My, the house that I grew up in was a, a beautiful old farmhouse that um, my father wasn't a farm. We, we rented the house, and it had a front porch with pillars and a roof over it, and that faced to the east, so once you got into the afternoon, it was always shady there, a, a bit cooler. So I was sitting out there just after dinner by myself. Inside the house, I could hear the sound of my family getting ready to go out the door because they were about, we were about to jump in the station wagon and drive to Allentown to a place called Waldheim. Some of you are familiar with Waldheim. It's a camp meeting in Allentown connected with the, the Evangelical Congregational Church, which still meets to this day. And... Every year to this day, there's one week during the summer where there is camp meeting week. They have services kind of every weekend throughout the summer, but this is one week where it's every night. It usually, at least it used to, it would, it would cover more than a week. It would start one weekend and carry into the next weekend. And they would always bring um, an evangelist to come to speak every night. And it, it's a beautiful setting, by the way. It, it, it's, a, it's a wooded area in Allentown, kind of up against South Mountain. And um, so it, it kind of tucked back there. You don't even know it's there as you, as you drive across the main road to, to get there. Unless you know it's there, there might be some signs. But it's very beautiful and, and shaded and cooler. Big pavilion. Well, we would go there every year for this week, every night. And... Um, it was time to go. And so they're all getting ready to go out the door, and someone says, where's Paul? And so they're calling for me, Paul, it's time to go. Let's Come on. And I'm sitting on the porch, and I wasn't moving. I didn't say a word. And my dad comes out the front door. I said, come on, Paul, it's time to leave. And I kind of had my head down, and I said, I, said, I don't want to go. Now, I was 12 years old. Long before I was 12, I knew that to have a battle with my dad about whether or not we're going to church 
was a loss for me. There, there was just no way. My, my, my dad's um, commitment and principle to going to church was, was just undeniable, and, and there's, no, there's no use in fighting, so, you know, like it or not, we're going to church. But he sensed right away that this wasn't me being defiant, I don't feel like going to church, or it's boring, or, you know, the, some of the usual complaints uh, a young man might make, a boy. Now, he knew it was something else, and he said, what's wrong, Paul? And I said, I'm afraid. And he said, what are you afraid of? We had gone the previous couple of nights, and the evangelist that year had chosen to speak about the book of Revelation and end times. And I listened. And, you know, here I am, a preacher all these years later, and as a boy, I might have been, uh, I probably had, ADHD or something back then, but they didn't call it that back then. I was just a restless boy, okay? Uh, <laughs> and so in church, I couldn't, wouldn't sit still, and, you know, I was getting bored and all of that. But, you know, I, I listened, too. Not every week, necessarily, but and that week, I was listening. I was hanging on every word of this man. And, and, and this evangelist was very fire and brimstone. And he's bringing all these, these stories and these strange descriptions in the book of Revelation and also in books like Daniel and Ezekiel about the end of the world. And it scared me to the core. And I wasn't so much scared that, you know, am I going to be okay? Like I already knew I had Jesus in my heart. It was just that, wow, it's 1972 and we're not going to make it out of the 70s. I didn't think we were going to make it to 1975. The way this man talked about everything just felt so eminent. And he talked about the dangers in the world as they were in that year and the events of the world leading up to this. And he had me convinced. So my dad, in his wisdom, said, Okay, Paul, you can stay home tonight. And I think I stayed home the rest of the week. I might have went back on the weekend for the closing service or something like that. But, but my father could see that. It wasn't worth submitting me to that because I was scared. Now, it wasn't his fault, obviously, but the damage had already been done. Ever hear the word fatalism? The dictionary definition is the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable, and usually in a very negative context. Uh, resignation, um, defeat, pessimism, negativism, gloominess. My definition of fatalism is Murphy's Law on steroids. Everything's going wrong. It's the way it's supposed to be, it's never going to get better, just accept it. As a 12-year-old boy, embracing that attitude was very damaging to me. And it was something I didn't realize at the time. In fact, I never really kind of thought back and retraced the steps of this until just very recently. I was not a very good student in school. 
And there's a lot of reasons for that, so I'm not going to lay it all on the feet of that evangelist at Waldheim in 1972, but that entered into my mind what he said, what books like The Late Great Planet Earth from Hal Lindsey, which was very popular and one of the bestsellers at that time, sort of like the Left Behind series that Tim LaHaye released in the 90s. This was what was released in the, in the 60s and in the early 70s. And so as I continued to, to take in those thoughts, subconsciously as a student, I had other issues in terms of focus and that kind of thing and just being restless. And so that was part of my challenge. But there was also a very clear idea in my, in my subconscious at least. Why bother studying when the world's going to end? Why am I preparing for a career and to learn things that I'm never going to see happen in my life? Jesus is going to come back any day now. It's going to all be over. I, ho- I sure hope the scenarios that they talk about where he comes before the tribulation happens are true because that was debatable and still is debated to this day. We'll touch on that in a moment. But... It was, it was a very stark way of looking at the future. And that, that had a deep impact on me. And I don't think, I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one, and probably am still not the only one. How many lives have been impacted? How many, um, you know, what's the right word? The... Our, our, our foundation of thinking, our, our worldview has been impacted by a fatalistic viewpoint from, let me say this carefully, scripture theory. That is, to interpret a difficult scripture and then say, this is the way it is, but really, it's a theory. I was talking about this a couple of days ago with a good friend. To, how, how much time do, do Christians today, how much time, effort, do we spend on the two things we have least control over? One of them we have no control over, and that is how everything began. We argue and debate. It, you know, some say, well, of course, it, it was God that created the world, and he did so in in." Seven 24-hour periods. And, and I know that defies science, but science is all wrong because that's the Word of God and that's what it says. And if you don't believe that, then you're questioning the Word of God. And if you're questioning the Word of God, then you're questioning Jesus and your salvation is on the line. Which, by the way, is just plain wrong to, to, to jump to that conclusion because there's disagreement and debate about exactly what the first few chapters of Genesis mean. But you know what? None of us know for sure. Why get so wrapped up in it? I'm not saying don't look at it, but always understand and have some humility about the fact that none of us know for sure how it all began. Or we jump to the other end. Someday the Lord's going to come back. Someday this is all going to end. How is it going to end? Well, here's what I got. I have my charts and, and and all these different scriptures to, to back it up. 
And then we take these charts and the sequences according to these theories and then look at the news of the day and plug them in and say, see, it's happening right before our eyes right now. We better be ready. It's all going to end. And we don't know that either. And yet, there is probably multi-millions of dollars spent on those two ends that we can't control by primarily Christians trying to figure out how it all began, where it's all going to end, and we lose sight of now. We lose sight of what has been, what could be, might be, and we're not sure about, but here's what we think, rather than paying attention to today and right now. And so what I want to propose to you this morning is that the danger, the danger for a 12-year-old boy named Paul Miller, the danger to all of us when we jump into something like Revelation, grab a verse or two, throw it on and stick it to a current event without looking at the rest of it. It happens all the time. So what I want to show you today is um, kind of the highlights of Revelation in terms of how the, this Revelation to John, the events on earth itself as he writes them. Now understand what is literal and what isn't literal and when and where all of these things happen are extremely debatable, very, very unclear. And you have to come into it with a sense of humility. And, and let me say this clearly too. There are many people who love Jesus Christ like you and I do, have given their lives to Him, who, who believe in faith that, that God sent Christ into this world to, to die for humanity and, and through faith in Him and His resurrection, we, we live forever and He's taught us how to live now while we're in this world and to make the most of it and to make it a better place. That's Christianity, right? That is belief in Jesus. So there are many people who have that same belief, rock solid and deep in their heart, who come to completely different conclusions about Revelation. The most common and popular one is the futuristic model, futuristic theory, and that's the one that Hal Lindsey wrote about in Late Great Planet Earth, Tim LaHaye wrote about in Left Behind, the movies that have been made about it. Here's how it's going to be. Okay, I see the scriptures. I see a whole lot of holes in the theory too. There is also some that believe these things have been happening very slowly throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 years. There's not, they're not waiting for a starting gun, and then it all happens. Some here, some there. Those theories are full of holes, too. There's another one that says the majority of Revelation happened just a couple of decades after the book was written. And, and most of it points to, to Rome, and to, to Caesar, especially Nero, and the, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's huge. I lean toward that one, but guess what? That theory is filled with holes, too. All of these boats leak. 
So don't get in them. Don't depend your life on them. So what you see in Revelation, it doesn't really get going until chapter 6 in terms of the impact on earth, all right? So again, I'm just jumping in. That's why I didn't want to give you, give you notes because this isn't, you know, what I'm saying is the way it's going to be. I just want you to get the sense of the, the earthly devastation that is put forth in a literal reading of Revelation. So in the sixth chapter, there is the seals that are broken. There are seven of them. And those seals bring conquest and war and economic crisis and famine and plague and wild beasts that are killing people. Martyrdom for those that believe in the word of God. Cosmic catastrophe to the sun, moon, and stars. All of that happening. And guess what? It's just starting. In the seventh chapter, you have 144,000 sealed, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. There's actually Israelites who are Christians, and they're kind of set apart to stay through the tribulation, as some of the theories say. Or does it mean something else? I'll just leave you the question mark. I really don't know. And you can dig into those theories. I'm sure some of you have already. But again, it is, it's not, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. There's nothing wrong with having question marks about passages like that. The eighth chapter, we have the trumpets now that are blown. And each trumpet blown brings a different series of devastating events upon the earth. A whole lot of one-thirds happen during the trumpets. A third of the earth is burned. A third of the trees specifically are burned. And it says all the grass. All the grass on the earth. That doesn't mean, I assume that means... We think of grass as our lawns, but in, in a scriptural definition, it's probably more like fields. So anyway, that's, if it's all burned, that's not good. A third of the sea turns to blood, literal. A third of the fish die, a third of the ships sunk, one third of the water poisoned, obviously, one third of light taken from the sun, moon, and stars. How does that happen? Now, you can look over the course of the last couple of centuries and see maybe some of this. The, think of the first one, for example, the rainforest being burned in Brazil and how much of that has gone in other places in the world. We, we take it down so many trees that have a third of them been burned up. I don't know, maybe. But you can't pick and choose. Right, so, so simultaneous with that, or on the heels of that, is all these other things. A third of the sea being poisoned. Now, there's a lot of pollution in the sea. There's a lot of fish who are dying, but is it a third of them? I don't know. I don't know about a third of the ships being sunk in the world. I don't remember that happening. There's, there's naval battles that happen that sink a lot of ships, but one third of all the boats, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even want to venture a guess as to how many boats are on, on all of the oceans of the planet. That hasn't happened. Third of the water poisoned. And what about this light taken from the sun, moon, and stars? I, I suppose if the earth was so polluted in the sky, that might be a way of saying that. But so, so the, the best you can do to plug today into there is, yeah, maybe some of it, but certainly not all of it. And the trumpets continue, and there's these some kind of locusts that sting like scorpions that strike people who don't have the seal of God on their hearts. And then there's this vast army, and, and I think it was actually 200 million, uh, an army the size of 200 million, I don't have 2 million on there, 
kills one-third of all the people on the earth. One-third of all the people on the earth in 2022 would be well over three billion. That didn't make the news last week. I don't think it happened. I don't think it's about to happen. Yeah, there's an, there's an army invading Ukraine from Russia right now, and that's wrong, and it, it, it's, it's awful, and it shouldn't be happening, but it's not that. And then there's something strange in the 11th chapter about two witnesses. They're, they're like Moses and Elijah in terms of the power they have, and they're able to stop the rain like Elijah did, able to turn blood to water and cause plagues like Moses did. And, and somehow these two individuals, the whole world knows who they are, but they can't stop them. Now, if that was going on, I think we'd know. And so that, that's, a, that's a unique kind of event as well, as described. Again, how much is literal? How much is figurative? One of the reasons I believe that a large portion of Revelation may have been fulfilled in the first century is a, a particular style of writing that, that John is using called Jewish apocalyptic writing. And, and other writers, when you, when you want to, to criticize power, when, when you want to have something bad to say but true about those in authority, well, if you just write it directly, you're going to get in trouble. But if you write in with, with, with metaphors about that power, then you can, they can't directly accuse you. So you don't call the emperor you know, Nero. You say, well, he's a beast. You don't call Rome, say how bad Rome is. You call it Babylon. Now, again, I'm emphasizing that that's one theory, and I acknowledge that. But it does, it does fit fairly well, and in some ways it doesn't. But this is another one. It, it's who are these people? What, how would they, what kind of power would they have? How literal was this? There's a woman and a dragon in chapter 12. Strange kind of description. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Um, and then in the 13th chapter, we have a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. Um, it actually doesn't, doesn't directly say much about Antichrist in Revelation. You get that more from, um, from Paul's writing, especially in Thessalonians. But um, this is where that would fit in, or at least a lot of people who, who take these various aspects of Scripture and try to weave them together to create the whole sequence of events. Now, I have a lot of respect for those people in terms of their knowledge in the background, and yet those theories kind of have some holes in them too. So we have this war against believers because of the beast or the Antichrist, and then there is the mark of the beast. This is probably one of the most well-known aspects of all of the Revelation. And by the way, it is the Revelation. It's not Revelations with an S on it. Just a pet peeve of mine. But <laughs> um, the beast... With 666 and what that means, one of the theories um, in the, the school of thought that, that I lean toward, you can, you can take uh, the number 666 and use letters and, and attach numbers to them in, in the Greek alphabet, and it comes out Nero. Uh, but you could play with that with other things and maybe come up with other conclusions, all right? 
So, is the beast, the Antichrist, the past? Is it future? Is it present? What does that person look like? Who is he? Well, one of the things the beast does, of course, is gives, makes people have this mark on them. And, and this is one of the most disturbing aspects among Christians in the last two years that, that I, I just, I'll just call it out and say what it is. It's wrong to say that your vaccine is a mark of the beast. Go to Scripture. On right hand or forehead. And usually people claiming that will be the first to go to Revelation and say, it's literal, it's literal, it's literal. Then you get to that, all of a sudden, well, it doesn't fit the current motif that I have, but it sure would be convenient to say this vaccine is somehow the mark of the beast. So we'll ignore the fact that it says right hand or forehead, forehead, because people have got these shots and, you know, Bill Gates and somebody put a microchip in there and I was going to follow you around the planet. Well, you know what? Bill Gates doesn't have to put a microchip in there because you've all got these phones in your pocket. You've all got devices you're on every day. To follow you is not that difficult. To track you is not very hard. Hackers know that. So that would be a whole lot of trouble to go to to somehow track us. But then to, to say that, you know, to, to get this shot is submitting to the beast. That's absurd. It's scripturally wrong. It's logically nuts. And, and now, I understand there are valid reasons that people have for not getting the vaccine, okay? I'm not coming down on that. Medical reasons, other questions about it, that's fine. And, and, and I don't want everyone to have to get it either. I don't think that's right. I don't think people should lose their jobs for not getting it. I know that's a big debate. So all that enters into it. I'm just saying very specifically, people that have claimed that the, sh the, the vaccine for COVID-19 is the mark of the beast, just stop it. Fourteenth chapter, is the, there's three angels and more devastation happens. There's a war against those who reject God. So there's a whole lot of war going on. And then there's the bowls of wrath. That's what's amazing about Revelation. You have, you have seals, you have trumpets, you have bowls. And each time there's, there's more devastation, more devastation, more devastation. But how much can the earth endure if this is literal? What is, what is happening here? Sores on those with the mark of the beast. Sea turned to blood and all the fish die again. Um, fresh water now turned to blood. Uh, extreme sunburn happening to people, uh, darkness coming over the land. Um, sort of looks like Moses again there, right? And what happened to Egypt? Um, kings gather for battle at a place called Armageddon. And then there's the biggest earthquake ever, and there's hailstones. And so th this is just a, an enormous kind of war that we haven't seen. Are we headed for one? But, but don't just think, okay, let's go with current events. Some think that Putin isn't going to be satisfied in, in wiping out Ukraine. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep going through Europe like Hitler did. He's going to keep going toward Israel because that's what he really wants in the Middle East and all their oil. And then the rest of the world is going to say, we're not going to do this. And China's going to march down and bring the 200 million soldiers. And then we're going to have finally there the Battle of Armageddon. Well, 
wars today aren't really dependent upon your number of soldiers the way they used to be. Wars are now high-tech. War, who, who has the most jets? Who has the, the missiles? I mean, you can, you can launch a missile from Washington, D.C. In, in Pentagon headquarters and follow it by camera to pinpoint an exact spot and virtually anywhere on the planet. You don't need to march in a million soldiers. That's what war is, and let's pray that it doesn't happen at that level. Of course not. But so, so the scenarios in Revelation don't just assume that it looks like the scenarios that have been painted now for the last 50 years. It's, it could be and probably is very different, and maybe it wasn't even what God was talking about when he put this in here. And then there's Babylon. This one came up big about 21 years ago. A great rich city on seven hills, seven heads. By the way, Rome is on seven hills. Ten kings, meaning ten horns. Not exactly sure. I'm sure some people have made theories about that. But then in the 18th chapter, Babylon is destroyed. And here's what it says. Uh, the one hour, in one hour, your doom has come, this city Babylon. Uh, in one hour, such a great city has been brought to ruin, a city that was rich and the whole world got rich off of it. Uh, thrown down, never to be found again. Do you know what, on, on 9-11 and after 9-11, there was people going to these verses and saying, well, here it is, Revelation is being fulfilled. Look at that, in one hour. And it's in, it's in the city where people get rich off of and there's great commerce and this, this is it. Here's a, here's a fulfillment of the book of Revelation. Let's just go pluck that out of the 18th chapter. Ignore all the devastation that I just pointed to. Well, well that doesn't matter because this fits better with today. Hmm. And then after a while they take those notes, throw them away, and go on to the next theory. And we're supposed to pretend that we didn't notice that they had that completely wrong. Hmm. A thousand years reign. A thousand years of Christ in the world. 20th chapter of Revelation. And then a big war at the end of that. A lot of theories about that. Literal or not, I don't know. We'll find out. Based on Revelation, then, and all of that devastation that I quickly described that is, is, is written in these strange chapters of this prophecy, is today the end, 2022? Well, let's answer some questions. Have we had the strongest earthquakes ever? Have we had the most deadly pollution ever? In some ways, we've gotten better in the last 50 years, pollution-wise. Have we had the biggest wars? Well, yeah. 75 years ago, 100 years ago, sure. But since then, a lot of wars. When Jesus talks about the end, he talks about there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in various places. Okay, if you're a student of history... Or if you failed history class and don't even look at it. Either way, I think 
you'd agree with me. Can somebody tell me a century in the history of humanity where there wasn't wars and rumors of wars, where there wasn't earthquakes going on? And yet, we think that we live in the time, so an earthquake comes, oh, there's another sign. Oh, Russia is attacking Ukraine. There's another sign. Ignoring the rest of the prophecy, and again, picking and choosing what just might fit in today. Is it the worst of plagues ever? Well, let's cut to the chase. COVID-19. These are the most deadly plagues in human history, as far as we know. Those big, colorful fuzzballs are the size of each plague, each disease, each virus. The really big one, the bubonic plague in the mid-1300s, and there's really tiny writing there, 1347 to 1351. 200 million people died. Europe lost a third of its population. There's that one-third thing. So if there's ever a time in history, they're one-third. Oh, well, there they were. But, oh, we're still here hundreds of years later. Smallpox um, in the 1500s. The green one is the Spanish flu, which, by the way, if um, you may realize, came right on the heels of World War I. So not only did World War I experience the most deadly war in human history, then just when that's winding down, another 40 to 50 million people die because of the Spanish flu. If ever there was a time where people could rightly think, this has to be the end, wow. If, 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 our, if we could talk to our grandparents or great-grandparents who lived through that time about those days, that must have been terribly frightening. And yet, 100 years later, here we still are. And then other plagues, and you get down to the, to the second column, you have to go three in, there you see COVID-19. Sadly, tragically, to, to date, 5.7 million people worldwide have died from this virus. And that's tragic. And all these things we've done that are argued about, the masks and the vaccines and the separation and the closing downs, all in an effort to keep that number as low as possible. So who knows how many more it will be. It, it, it's looking good as to it winding down right now, and I'm thankful for that. But there's still a thousand or more dying per day who got the Omicron a month ago and are hanging on. So if COVID-19 is a sign of the end because it's this big worldwide catastrophe, it doesn't even measure up to worldwide catastrophes in our own history in terms of a plague. It's seventh on the list. Number six has doubled as the amount. A, a plague called the third plague in 1855 took 12 million lives. We're not even halfway there yet. And yet we want to look at this pandemic and say, that's it. Christ is coming because there's COVID-19. Hmm. Is it really the worst ever? What the, the attitude that I, I'd like all of us to embrace, that I try to embrace from scriptures. Now, I'm not saying we should ignore revelation. I'm not saying we shouldn't at least understand 
some of the theories, and, and, and I do, but to put so much stock into them that we throw away hope for the world, that, that we throw away any future for our children and our grandchildren because Tim LaHaye said it's going to be this way or how Lindsay wrote it that way. That's fatalism. That's not faith in the one that God has sent. And what did Jesus himself say about his second coming just before he left? They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. I think we conveniently avoid that verse and yet, it was the question the disciples had right before he was about to leave. They want to know when he's coming back. It's a very human thing to do. And Jesus said, don't focus on that. That's not for you to know. And he says that to us right now. And he also said in Matthew 6.34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's look at today. Let's not look at the, the pandemic and the political divisions and, and a war in Europe and, and through, through a lens of, of somebody's theory about end times. Let's look at it in what it's done to us, what it's doing to us, what it's doing to you. And today, instead of a prayer hymn, I prepared a video that recaptures and recounts some of what we've all walked through in the last two years. And I think it's good from time to time to pause and say, wow, we've been through all that. And that's a good place to get to. Because what God wants us to do is, is to be still and to know that He is God.